Amen. You know, we serve such a great God. I mean, uh, who knew uh, that, uh, you know, when I planned to go through Psalms uh, several months ago now as we were getting close to the end of Hebrews, I think it was one of the heirs kids that said, hey, what are you going to do next? And I said, well, I'm still thinking about it, praying about it. And they said, well, why don't you do Psalms? And so, you know, I got to thinking about it and that thought just couldn't get out of my head. And I thought, well, that's that's very timely. You know, I always like to do Old Testament, then New Testament, Old Testament, then New Testament in the book studies. And so we're going to camp out in the book of Psalms. And of course, uh, for me personally and my family this week, uh, it's been very timely to be thinking about <clears throat> all the comfort that the Psalms bring us, and uh, particularly Psalm uh, 23, which we'll get to uh, in a moment. Now, I, I could spend, you know, literally several months teaching about the nature of Psalms, what they are, how they're written, their, their literary style and structure and timing and so forth. And uh, honestly, if this was a college or seminary course on wisdom and poetic literature from the Old Testament, we might uh, do that. But I, I want to get you know, really straight to the meaning and significance of selected psalms. And so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the details, but I do think it would be good to spend just five or ten minutes here at the outset of the first message in this series uh, looking at kind of the broad background and context of uh, the psalms. I think it will help give us some perspective as we study individual passages and individual psalms in the coming uh, weeks. And so uh, so if, if you'll just kind of indulge me for a moment, I want to want to take want to do that just to set the stage. So, what are the Psalms? You know, the the word Psalm comes from the Greek word psalmoi, which means songs to the accompaniment of a stringed instrument, which is kind of cool because we have quite a lot of stringed instruments uh, up here. I mean, some days I think they're going to take over. I'm not really sure. I've you know, I mean, you could use some of the smaller ones as a weapon if you had to. Um, but uh, I love our, our worship team and our stringed instruments, but that's where the, the word comes from. But in the Old Testament Hebrew, the actual title is Tehillim, or praise songs. So nothing profound there. I think everybody understands that psalms are praise songs on some uh, level or another. And in terms of the date, they, they cover a period of about a thousand years. So you've got 150 psalms in our Bibles. And, uh, and, and they start with the oldest being from around the time of Moses, roughly 1446 B.C. to 1400 B.C., when uh, so Moses wrote Psalm 90. Um, I'll get to some of the authors uh, in just a second, but uh, Moses may well have written Psalm 91. The biblical text doesn't tell us that, but we have some extra biblical commentaries, that, uh, commentaries on the Tehillim, the Old Testament Psalms, that suggest he may have written Psalm 91 as well, but at least he wrote one, which means the oldest song is some 1,400 years before Christ. And then uh, they take us all the way up to the Israelites' return from exile, so roughly 450 B.C. So we're talking about the book of Psalms covering a period of about 1,000 years, but the bulk of them are really written over about a 550-year period from the time of David and Solomon and roughly 1,000 years before Christ again until 450 B.C. Now, it's made up of several uh, human authors. The most uh, well-known and notable is David, who wrote half of them, 75. Now, the biblical text, again, tells us that he wrote 73 of them in, in the Psalms. But the New Testament, of course, written under the inspiration of the Spirit, attributes two more to him. So we know he wrote a total of 75, which is half of them. And then the second most prolific writer of the Psalms is Asaph, who wrote 12 
And then the sons of Korah uh, wrote 11. Solomon accounts for two of the Psalms, David's son. I mentioned Moses wrote one for sure that we, uh, that we know of. Heman wrote uh, one. And then Ethan wrote one. And then the remaining 48 are anonymous. <clears throat> so now um, those of you that are quick at math, so not you, Gary. Um, I'm just kidding. That's an, that's an inside joke. Um, uh, but if you've done the quick math in your head, you'll notice the total numbers on the screen total up to 151. And that's because uh, Heman that you see was attributed to one psalm. He actually co-wrote that with the sons of Korah. So that's why we end up with an extra there, because the sons of Korah wrote 11, one of which was also written by Heman. So we want to give Heman his, his due. He needs to have his name on the front of the book cover, right? Because he's a co-author of that psalm. But anyway, because of that, it makes it look like there's 151. But really, it's 150, because the one that Heman wrote is included within those 11 uh, from the sons of Korah. Now... There are a lot of types of psalms, and, you know, I've taught psalms for years, and, and I'm sure Pastor John could tell you this as well from studying it for years. There's really a wide variety of ways you could categorize the psalms, and, and depending on who you're reading and studying, they might put them into different categories. But I really think when it boils down, there's basically nine broad categories that relate to the content of the psalms, what's in them. And pretty much agreement on at least these uh, categories. And uh, the first category is what we call lament psalms, either individual prayers for some type of help in the midst of trouble, or in many cases praying, praying for Israel as a nation, national deliverance in distress. So those are lament psalms. Uh, and then, of course, the biggest category is praise psalms or hallel Psalms, we call them in Hebrew, which is just giving general praise to God. And by the way, as we go through in the coming weeks, different psalms, I'll try to tell you at the start of each message what type of song, psalm that it is. But it'll be pretty clear, I think, from the context, if I had given you a quiz and said, hey, categorize these, this psalm into one of these nine or ten categories, you probably could do it just based on the context. Some psalms are thanksgiving psalms, songs for praising God for particular deliverance from some danger or enemy or trouble. And then there are a lot of trust psalms that just express confidence in God. Uh, not necessarily lamenting a particular trial, but just praising God for his trust, or for his faithfulness. And then uh, there's a psalm, <coughs> a set of psalms in, verse, in Psalms 120 to 134 that we call the Ascent Psalms or Song of Ascents. These are the ones that the Israelites sang on the way up to Jerusalem for the various... Uh, feasts and festivals and, and things like that. And we're going to look at a few of those, at least, in this uh, series. You've got enthronement psalms. You can always recognize those by the characteristic phrase, the Lord reigns, uh, speaking of the ultimate reign of God over the universe. But then there are royal psalms, which speak of the King of Israel, <coughs> the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who will, is, they're messianic in a way, but they speak specifically of his reign over uh, the earth. And then, uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier, and there's a, there are imprecatory psalms, which are when you pray for God to bring judgment uh, on his enemies. I mentioned this, I think, in, in our first hour. We looked at an imprecatory psalm during the Bible study hour. <clears throat> and so these are our, kind of our favorite. 
because they have some harsh words to say for those evildoers out there that are hurting people and bringing shame to God and really putting us in danger. And so the psalmist would often pray these imprecatory psalms and sing these <clears throat> you know, songs. And you don't often think of singing in the context of you know, bringing down judgment, but I mean, the psalms did it, psalmists did it, so why can't we, right? So the next time you find yourself in danger from an enemy, just start singing a song to him and, and, and maybe he'll flee. You know, you could say, Lord, please strike him with lightning and just, you know, la, la, la. And he'll wonder what in the world you're doing and maybe he'll be so dumbfounded. Uh, he'll, uh, I, I mean, it might work. It might work, right? Remi I don't know why I said that. It reminds me, it reminds me of the story of the lady, uh, I may have told you this, that was robbed and she just... You know, she could hear the burglars coming in, and she was back in her bedroom, and she's a Christian lady, and she just started hollering out, Acts 2.38, Acts 2.38, Acts 2.38, just saying that scripture. And eventually all went quiet, and they left, and when the police got there, she had called 911. They, they said uh, uh, they, they caught these uh, burglars that had fled down the street, and they said, what, you know, why did you flee? And she, they said, well, I don't know, but that lady kept talking about how she had an axe and two thirty-eights, and so I thought I thought we better we better get out of here. Uh, so anyway, uh, so you never know when how God's going to use Scripture in your life in the face of enemies. And then of course, messianic psalms are some of the sweetest psalms in God's Word that speak of Christ. Um, and we can think of Psalm two, Psalm twenty-two, many others. Uh, and we'll probably look at some of those in this series. Uh, but those are some of the categories in terms of content. There's another uh, sort of category based on arrangement, and uh, we see this uh, most notably uh, Psalm 119, and these are called acrostic uh, psalms, which are organized for easy memorization, where they start with uh, the different sections or stanzas, uh, uh, if you will, uh, that each stanza begins with this first letter of the alphabet. So like, for example, if we had a, a hymn, an acrostic hymn in English, it would have 26 stanzas. The first stanza would start with a word that starts with A. The second stanza would start with a word that starts with B. The third stanza would start with a word that starts with C, and so on. And even in your English Bibles, if you were to look up some of these, like Psalm 119, you'll see, you'll see that each section has the little Hebrew letter, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, and all the way through the Hebrew uh, alphabet. So that's just a little bit of background in terms of the date, some of the authors, um, and uh, some of the kind of types of psalms. They are. They're beautiful hymns. Obviously, they're the inspired Word of God, so we know all Scripture is profitable and God-breathed, and, and uh, we, we understand how God is using, uh, uses the psalms in, in that sense. But from a historical setting, you can just, in some cases, in many cases, picture God's people singing these hymns in the particular context in which uh, they, were, uh, they were written. Uh, we think that all of the psalms were compiled and put together in the book that we now call the Book of Psalms by Ezra the Priest, again in the 400s uh, B.C., but as I mentioned, there are several authors, most notably David among them. So for, with that background, let's take a look at uh, the most famous psalm of all that even unbelievers are familiar with and might even be able to quote. Uh, and that is Psalm 23. I'm calling this a fresh look at famous lyrics. And this would be uh, classified as a trust psalm, expressing trust in God. And uh, the psalms, by the way, 
are, are organized into in our English Bibles into five books, book one, book two, all the way to book five. And this is right smack in the middle of book one, which is Psalms 1 to 41. So I want to ask, begin by asking this question. Why has this psalm resonated with people for so many centuries, for millennia, really? Obviously, if David wrote it, which he did, then this was we're talking roughly a thousand years before Christ. And I'll get to the background of this psalm in, in just a moment. But what is it that speaks to our hearts so deeply and, and, and brings comfort and peace and hope and confidence in all different circumstances of life? Well, I think, I think it's because we can all relate to the life journey and experiences of this author, King David. Now, we call him King David, but he was really a, a shepherd boy turned king. And that's one of the reasons we can relate to him. It doesn't matter, you know, where you've been. He's been there. It doesn't matter where there is for you in your own life. He's been there. Um, you know, he was a lowly shepherd boy. He was a laborer. He was unfairly characterized by his own family. He had definite family issues. He had serious battles. He was often the underdog. You could think of his encounter with Goliath. His story is a rags to riches story of fame. His story includes being disgraced by his own sins. I mean, he's seen it all. And there's virtually nothing within his life journey that all of us can't connect with. And in fact, for most of us, probably on multiple points, right? So we relate to this poignant uh, and profound psalm. Uh, it's short, but let's take a look. Before we start, let's uh, let me give you a little bit of background. Obviously, David is the author. He was the great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz, the youngest of eight brothers, and he was brought up to be a shepherd. Uh, but of course, uh, God called him to replace Saul when Samuel anointed him. Uh, he also ministered to Saul and was his armor bearer for a while before he took uh, the throne. Obviously, one of the most well-known stories about David was when he defeated Goliath in that uh, famous uh, confrontation. Um, uh, he repeatedly escapes Saul's hostility. Saul wanted to kill him at one point uh, with the help of his friend Jonathan, so we can relate to that whole relationship as well with his friend. Um, once Saul was dead, David began his reign as the king of Israel at the age of 30. And so uh, he reigned from uh, 1010 B.C. to 970 uh, B.C. And his 40-year reign was filled with all sorts of victories and tragedies. And then he later wrote about these in, as I said, 75 different psalms, including Psalm 23, which we are looking at now. And in this psalm, David looks at life through the lens of his life experiences. And uh, don't we all do that sometimes? We tend to uh, think uh, uh, of God through our own experiences. And the problem with that can be that if our experiences are bad and we haven't had healthy experiences, healthy examples, for example, of a father, you might tend to look, you know, you know keep God at a distance as, your, as our heavenly father. Um, but when David is doing it here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's basically recognizing the hand of God in his life 
through both his experiences as a shepherd and as a king. A lot of people don't realize that this short psalm actually draws on metaphors not just from his days as a shepherd, but at the end of the psalm we're going to see how he draws on metaphors from his days as a king. So this is more than just a shepherd's perspective, it's a king's perspective as well. So I want us to kind of break this down into what I see as four ways that God shepherds his children, four ways that God takes care of us as David described them. And the first one is the Lord gives us everything we need, emphasis on need. Uh, you know, the Lord is a giving God, first and foremost. He's a giver. He's not a taker. He's not a demander. He's a gracious God who gives. And uh, what God asks of us uh, in, in, in our lives and in His Word and His guide for living and His commandments is for our own protection. You know, God is God's not some dictatorial leader who takes pleasure in having His subjects bow down and worship Him. Yeah, there are commands in Scripture and guidelines and rules for living in the Old and New Testament alike. But those are all for our own good because God is first and foremost a giver. And the psalm begins with those famous words of the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. One word in Hebrew, the I am, Yahweh. Um, and uh, this one word sets the tone for the rest of the psalm. It begins with Yahweh. It's about God. You know, David is meditating and thinking about the Lord. And his description that he then gives flows naturally from his own experiences. But the Lord is the hero of the psalm. The Lord is center stage. That word Yahweh uh, is used over 6,000, almost 7,000 times in the Hebrew Old Testament as the personal name for God, the I Am, the one who is. Uh, you might say the life giver or the keeper of promises. All of those are wrapped up into this unique name that is only used of God. There are other Old Testament words more generally that are, speak of God like Adonai, but that can be used of God in any other Lord or servant. And then, of course, there's Elohim, the formal name for God, which in the grammar is plural. Uh, that's the one we see at the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the, the triune God, which is why later on in chapter 1 of Genesis it says, let us create man in our own image, plural. Uh, but this name alone is reserved for God. It's his personal name. In fact, the, the, the Jews so revered this name, and I've talked about this before, that they wouldn't even vocalize it. Uh, remember, the Hebrew language was largely a verbal language. Uh, not everybody had copies of the scroll. They would memorize Scripture by repeating it over and over again to their children and grandchildren, and they could quote Scripture uh, like crazy. But you know, back before mo the modern era, they didn't have a lot of uh, copies. We have a lot more manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, which was written in the first century AD, than we do of of the uh, Hebrew Old Testament. In fact, before we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, we had comparatively few. Uh, but uh, what we know is that whenever they would write the, the scriptures, the scribes, they would not write uh, this Hebrew word. Remember, you read from right to left in Hebrew, so Yod, Hate, Vav, Hate would be the four letters there. They wouldn't write that because they so <laughs> revered his name, his personal name. Uh, and they would, they would write Adonai, and they would say Adonai. That's how important this name was to them. And yet David writes here, of course the Old Testament uses the word Yahweh, but I'm saying when the Masoretes and other scribes would copy it, 
they wouldn't copy it with the normal vocalization of Yahweh. They wanted to remind people, you don't say Yahweh. You don't say it. That's how special a name it is. And he begins this psalm with a reference to Yahweh, whom he says is my shepherd. My shepherd. Well, what do shepherds do? They lead, they protect, they feed, they guide, they restrain, they do all kinds of other things. And what's interesting is in, in the ancient Near East, other pagan kings and leaders would refer to themselves as the shepherds, you know, and their people as, you know, the sheep, and, and they would have to, you know, control them and so forth. But here David says it's the Lord, Yahweh, that is my shepherd. And, uh, and so he goes on, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I, I lack nothing. We have everything we need. God gives us everything we need. He makes us lie down in green pastures. You know, I was I was struck one time visiting the Ayers family farm. How that he Jeff was explaining how they move the grazing spots for the goats. I think it was right from place to place. And they kind of put a little fence around them, and then they put their Pyrenees dogs out there to run off the mountain lions and bears. But uh, uh, the sheep will graze, and then when that grass is all eaten, then what do you have to do? You move it to another pasture, right? You can't leave them there forever because they can't eat dirt, and that's after a certain period of time, the grass is going to go away. And so a good shepherd, obviously, in, in leading his flock, is going to take them to green pastures and to still waters. Uh, the Hebrew word still there means free from disturbance. Think placid, just, just like a beautiful... Uh, lake and uh, you know they can't eat they can't drink from waters that are all stirred up and dirty or that are you know waterfalls I mean can you picture a sheep standing under a waterfall trying to grab water they go to these nice places where they can easily be refreshed in fact that's how verse this section the first part of verse 3 ends with he restores my soul the word soul in Hebrew is the word nefesh it means that the whole being the whole you it's basically he he revitalizes me. He gives me everything I need for, for life, and just as a shepherd does for his sheep. So the first way, then, is that God gives us everything we need. Maybe not everything we want, but everything we need. But secondly, then, we see the Lord guides us in the right direction. Verse 3 goes on. Uh, he leads me in the paths of righteousness. Now, literally, paths of righteousness here is the right path. He's not talking only about moral behavior. He's talking that, you know, God wants you to go in a certain direction and sometimes you wonder which way you should go. God's going to help you choose the right path, right? Um, so he, a lot of times we read this and we think God, you know, tells me what I should do morally and keeps me from making a mistake or keeps me from sinning, for example. That's not necessarily all that's wrapped up in this phrase, leads me in the paths of righteousness. You know, a good shepherd knows the right paths on which to bring the sheep home safely. You know, what's the right path? He knows maybe over there there might be some crevices and places where mountain lions and other predators could hide out. But over here it's kind of safe. I've got a good vantage point. I can see a predator coming. I'm going to take the right path. And that's what the Lord, our shepherd, does. Which path should I take? You ever been at a crossroads like that? Many times, right? All through life, it's a series of decisions. It's a, it's a matter of choosing the which way to go, you know, understanding the will of God. What does he want me to do in this situation? Should I take this job? Should I buy this house? Should I move here? Should I do this? Should I do that? 
and and we need God's you know to show us as a good shepherd which way to go um, and in David's case of course he c communicated directly with God this was God would speak uh, to other prophets directly and he could discern God's will today with us it starts with the Bible God's Word today gives us everything we need for life and godliness it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I mean, think about that. As we go through life, metaphorically speaking, there are pitfalls, there are dangers, there are traps, there are things that if we're not really in touch with the Lord and letting the shepherd lead and guide us, we might end up making a mistake, right? And we often do, and God is gracious. We learn from those mistakes and so forth as well. But, uh, you know, the Bible is, is the way God leads us today. It's his precious direction for us you know 3800 times the bible says thus says the lord and you know again david didn't have a bible so to speak he was actually you know used of the lord to compose portions of scripture but this was way before printing presses and way before paper way before digital technology you know he couldn't pull out his smartphone and look up a bible app you know for david it was a matter of praying to the lord and the Lord would speak to him in some cases audibly. But I've often imagined in my mind's eye that if David did have a Bible, it would probably look something like this. David knew God. He knew him very well. And he could hear the voice of the Lord. He trusted God to lead him in the right direction and to make wise choices. Now, I can't remember if I've ever shown you this chart that I've used for years that uh, helps us in choosing the right path, but if I have, it's a helpful reminder uh, again this morning. But how do you choose the right path? You know, it, God's Word doesn't say in chapter and verse, Dear J.B. and Wendy, buy this house, or Dear J.B. and Wendy, do this, or Dear J.B., you know, go this direction. So how do we take the principles of God's Word and use them, because this is our shepherd's way of guiding us, to make wise decisions. Well, I think every decision falls into one of three categories. Obviously, in the first place, there are clear commands, which are unambiguous, not, you know, not, not in question at all, and we need to obey them, right? Uh, it's all a matter of simple obedience. These are objective standards, clear standards in God's Word. So, for example... If you're thinking about robbing a bank and you're laboring over, should I rob the bank or should I not rob the bank? Pretty clear what God's Word says, right? Don't do it. And we could think of any other uh, sins that we might be tempted to commit as well. But sometimes the, it's not a matter of a clear objective command of God's Word. Sometimes it's a matter of the timeless principles of God's Word where we have to apply a particular principle in our lives and so it's somewhat objective and somewhat subjective. The principle is objective. It's clear. But we have to ask, does this principle apply in this situation? So in these, these cases, it's less clear. This is why it's so important to get to know the Word of God. Uh, and, and I can't tell you the number of times that passages from, for example, Proverbs, uh, which I learned to start reading when I was in seventh grade and have pretty much with few exceptions read a proverb a day ever since then that a proverb will pop into my mind that the Lord uses when making a particular uh, decision and so you know that's that's much, that's where most of life comes for believers it's taking the principles of God's word and saying no I shouldn't do this or maybe I should do this whatever the decision you're trying to make is 
based on principles of God's word. But then there's a third category, which is even less clear. And these are the ones where it just is, is you know, takes uh, some patience and some, some time. And these are life experience. You know, sometimes life experience itself can be a great teacher. Proverbs it tells us in Proverbs 15, 31, the ear that hears the rebukes of life will abide among the wise. And so this is when we have to discern God's will through the Holy Spirit and observing life's experiences, right? This calls for discernment. It's very subjective and, and, and the, you know, it's, it's very vague. We just have to uh, seek counsel. Proverbs says in the wisdom, there's wisdom and counsel. Uh, multitude of counselors, there is safety. And so at the end of the day, we get our hearts before the Lord. We study the scriptures to see if there are any relevant principles. We seek counsel. We, we you know, look to life's experiences. You know, if, if you've done something before, especially if you've done it two or three times and it hasn't ended well, that might be the Lord's way of saying, hello, don't do that, you know, this time. So life can be a great teacher. But at the end of the day, when we make decisions, even if they don't always go well, if we've prayed about it, we've sought principles from God's word, we've sought the counsel of others, and in, in good faith, with a good heart before the Lord, we make the decision. If it turns out not to be the right decision, God is gracious. God is gracious always. And uh, maybe he'll use that in some way in our life. But I think that's a good uh, paradigm that I've used in our family for years for how to make the right path. But the bottom line is, it's God's word, and that's what David says. He, he leads me in the right path. Uh, but notice he says he does it for his namesake, hearkening back to the very first word in the psalm, Yahweh. God's very name is at stake. David understood that God's reputation was on the line. And if David did something that God, Yahweh, the God who is, tells him to do, he could take it to the bank. That God is not going to let him down because God, the eternal creator of the universe, his very reputation uh, is at stake. So we can trust God the way David did. And then thirdly, we see the Lord grants us courage in the face of danger. Courage in the face of danger. You know, part of his guidance involves guiding us through difficult and dangerous seasons of life. You know, we live in a fallen world. Bad things happen. Um, it's no fun to lose a loved one, as we've experienced this week. And uh, so he says, Yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. In Hebrew, that's literally, if you translated it with a wooden literalness, it would be the deep, dark valley. The deep, dark valley. Uh, so it's not just death, though that's the most, probably the darkest valley anyone can face. Uh, but it's sickness. could be cancer. It could be the loss of a loved one, divorce, bankruptcy, failure, injury, tragedy, conflict, danger, false accusations, unfair treatment, some kind of spiritual attack, loss of a child, abandonment, personal conflicts, family conflicts, broken relationships, loss of a job, disability. What's your deep, dark valley? Obviously, David still is here hearkening to his own experiences as a shepherd, and sometimes for whatever reason, you had to go through a dark valley. You had to guide these sheep there. And David said, I'm going to fear no evil. Evil there in Hebrew doesn't mean morally evil, the way we might think of good versus evil. It just means danger, harm, calamity, you know, very difficult circumstance. So he says, you know, if God's leading me down this path for one reason or another, maybe there was a predator over here, uh, 
Maybe some other shepherd stole my spot, you know, like people do in church when they take your seat. Isn't that annoying, right? Uh, not really. Uh, and uh, so I'm going to go this path this time. And I've never been down this path. And I don't know if there's a mountain lion or some something lurking in the shadows that's going to jump out and kill some of my sheep. But I'm not going to be afraid of that. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff are comforting me. And, you know, I came across as I was kind of studying this and coming up with some illustrations, I came across with a humorous uh, illustration. And I was hoping uh, Suzanne would be here because I wanted to prove that I can say nice things about cats. Okay? <laughs> so for the record, you please let her know that I'm, I'm actually lifting up cats as a hero in this, in this illustration. Um, but uh, I thought this was quite apropos. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You know, that cat is my hero, right? And sometimes that's what we feel like, right? We feel like, man, I'm coming at, people are coming at it from all over the place, right? Coming at me from all, danger lurks around every corner. And yet, you know, like a typical cat, just proudly strutting through nothing. I shouldn't have said that because now I've, gone back to criticizing cats but but anyway you see my point there's a certain confidence there and remember what Jesus said by the way right before at the end of his ministry right before he uh, left to ascend to the right hand of the throne of God he appeared he had been crucified and resurrected and appeared for 40 days and he left us with these encouraging words lo I am with you always even to the end of the age right um, and uh, he told his disciples just six or seven weeks earlier in the upper room before he was crucified, uh, right before, within 24 hours, he told them, look, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And so for the shepherd, you know, he, he's trusting in Yahweh, even in the deep dark valleys of his uh, life as a shepherd and he says God in the same way protects him in his life and then of course a, a shepherd has some physical instruments that he can use you know he's got the rod which was rod which is like a billy club that we would carry, carry attached to his belt to beat off any attacking animals much easier to be a shepherd today because you just have to have you know 45 or 357 or maybe a 410 or something but he had this billy club and then he also had these staffs or these walking sticks, like the one you see in the graphic that I'm using for these slides. And those uh, had all sorts of purposes of practical value. They could help stabilize him as he's walking. They could, he could push stuff out of the way. And, of course, as a, if a sheep fell into a crevice or got too far astray, he could use the crooked, uh, the crook at the end of the staff to uh, pull him back into the fold. And so David says, you know, God, you have a rod and a staff. Obviously, this is a, an extended metaphor, these first four verses. God is not literally a shepherd, and the whole psalm begins with, the Lord is my shepherd. But it just reminds us that God has uh, certain things that he uses in our life to keep us from danger. And that's the reason we can go through deep, dark valleys and come out the other side. And I don't know what God may use in your life, but I guess a group this large, there's probably multiple people here that are in a dark valley of some kind. And 
you need to recognize that God is with you. He's going to comfort you. And, um, and he has already plans in the works to help see you through. You know, in the case of uh, my mother-in-law, it was an answer to prayer yesterday when the Lord called her home because that was her release, right? A home free at, at, at last. And, uh, and it was her time. And, uh, and we are so thankful that she was able to avoid a prolonged period of suffering. And um, so God works in mysterious ways. And God certainly provides the comfort here, which a shepherd would use a rod and a staff. You know, I can imagine a sheep would, would always, before they would head out to pasture with their shepherd, would always kind of give one look over the shoulder to make sure that shepherd had his rod and his staff. And if you forgot one, I just picture those shepherds kind of pawing at the ground saying, hey, did you forget something, buddy? And God never forgets his rod and his staff, whatever they may be. And they may not look like the rod and staff that we imagine. You know, don't you love how we like to tell God what to do? Tell God how to solve our problems? Like God's going to say, well, hey, I hadn't really thought about that. Let me give it a shot. Um, and that's normal. That's natural. But we need to remember that God's solutions to our problems don't always take the shape and the form that we wish that they would from a human perspective. But, but he's there. He, he, he's giving us courage in the face of danger. We don't have to worry. Uh, and we should not worry. But then the, me the metaphor switches for these last two verses. And we see the Lord guards us when an enemy attacks. In those moments when there is actually an attack. Um, and so he switches from a shepherd's life to a king's life. Uh, two subjects, of course, with which David was intimately familiar and eminently qualified to discuss. As he thought about God's protection, he no doubt recalled the protection uh, that a shepherd provides the sheep, which he had alluded to just as we just looked at in the previous stanza there. Yea, though I walk to the valley of the death, I rod and I staff that cover me, and so on. But possibly more recent memories of God's protection came to his mind where David had faced enemies in military battles. Remember, David is writing these later on in life, reflecting on his past. He's not sitting out watching his sheep writing this. Okay, sometimes you get that impression. But this was written well after David had been a shepherd. And more recent memories were his memories of leading the nation of Israel. And he had seen how God had protected the nation and he as the king again and again in underdog circumstances. So notice he says, you prepare a table before me. So in the ancient Near East, they had a custom uh, where you would announce your victory through hosting a massive victory feast or banquet. You know, they didn't have Facebook and you, you couldn't tweet updates about the battle. You couldn't send a Snapchat. We won. You know, there was no alerts on your phone. So the way they would announce that they had gotten victory over an enemy was to host a massive celebration. Um, and uh, it was called the victory banquet. That's the table that he's talking about here. But notice he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of his enemies. In this particular case, David's enemies are forced to come and watch the victory feast. You kind of get the picture that they've lined up all the prisoners of war outside the, the banqueting 
hall, which they didn't have glass back then, but they had openings in the side walls, and they're all you know bound up in shackles, and they're watching as David and his uh, military generals and battle people and other dignitaries are all gathered around enjoying a scrumptious feast, sort of like in your face to the enemy. Now just picture that metaphor. That's what he's talking about. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He goes on, you anoint my head with oil. Very common ancient Near Eastern practice that actually carried on even into the first century. We several, see several examples uh, of this in the New Testament. Um, and even in the church age, by the way, it's a, it's a symbolic gesture, James tells us. But the idea was a, a thoughtful host would welcome someone into the protection of their home by pouring small amount of oil on their head, and, and, and it was a means of sort of bestowing honor and refreshment. And, uh, you know, so, so he's saying God is basically refreshing me after this battle, is what he's basically saying. In fact, he's doing it in an abundant way. My cup is overflowing. Uh, you know, obviously a, a cup runs over or overflows when it's got too much in it, right? Um, you know, when, you, when it, it's got more than it can handle. And this is basically speaking of God's generosity. Jesus, in that same passage where he calls himself the great shepherd, the good shepherd, uh, talks about how uh, he came to give life and that more abundantly. This, that's, uh, you know, this, this overflowing nature of God's blessing and goodness. You ever been in a situation like that where it just seemed like the odds were dire? And yet, amazingly, to us, not to God, but to us, God provided. Um, Ephesians 3.20 describes God as the one who's able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. Uh, and James reminds us that when we pray, we should uh, pray for wisdom to God, and he will give it to us generously. So here David, in this metaphor of his life as a king, ha is talking about how he has a lot in his life that overflowed with abundant blessings to the Lord, and that he's defeated his enemies, signified by the victory feast, and not only that, but God is having them, you know, sit there uh, and and watch. And then notice what he says next: Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Now, grammatically in Hebrew, you wouldn't be able to see this necessarily just from an English translation, but this is. Uh, not two separate things, goodness and mercy. Goodness is an adjective in Hebrew. Mercy is a noun. It's literally God's good mercy or God's good love. And the word mercy there is the famous Hebrew word chesed, which means faithfulness, loving kindness, loyalty, graciousness. It's used 245 times. And so God's good chesed, his good loving kindness, his good loyalty, his good faithfulness, his good mercy uh, is what is following uh, David. We see this in another Davidic psalm, Psalm 36, how precious is your loving kindness, O God. And they frequently reference God's faithfulness. But here's the cool part that you probably haven't thought about from verse 6, and that is that verb, follow me. So God's good mercy is following you. Remember the metaphor he shifted to in verse 5 is one of a king and enemy nations and a battle. And the word follow there is the word radapu. Radapu. Radafu, actually, more precisely. Radafu in Hebrew. And it's normally translated every other time 
It's used 143 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. Pursue, chase, hunt down. It's always used in the context of an enemy pursuing its prey or you pursuing your enemy. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples just so you understand the, the normal nuance of this word follow. Uh, that's translated follow there anyway. Exodus 14, the Egyptians during the Exodus are following uh, the Israelites to the uh, Red Sea. And it says the Egyptians pursued, Radafu, same Hebrew word, Radafu. Or here's one from David's personal life. When Saul, remember I said David was frequently fleeing from Saul who was trying to kill him? Here, here it is. Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David. Same thing, Radafu. So what this really is is a play on words. David is saying, watch this, this is so cool. David is saying that my, you, you allowed me to defeat my enemies. We're enjoying a scrumptious feast while our enemies are sitting and watching us in the, you know, in the presence of my enemies. Meanwhile, instead of my enemies pursuing me, Radafu, the way they always, the way the word's always used, except here, what, what is pursuing me? Your chesed, your goodness and love. God's good love. So instead of our enemies hunting us down, it's God's good love that overtakes us. That's the principle. And so you ever feel like your enemy, whatever it is, whatever deep, dark valley you're facing, is nipping at your heels? Well, take heart. God's faster than your enemy. And, uh, and, 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 and he's with you. And so how should we respond? David concludes with the obvious response to such an amazing God, and that is, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The house of the Lord in David's day represented God's presence. The temple hadn't been built yet. And so he's saying that in light of God's goodness and all that he does for us, I'm going to stay close to him. I'm going to be in the presence of God. And what better place to be in life than in the presence of the Lord? In fact, the worst thing you can do, in the, in the, especially in a crisis, is push the Lord away. We want to draw near to the Lord in times of trouble. You know, in that same intimate moment that Jesus had with his disciples when he told them, in this world you'll have tribulation, he also uh, reminded them that they, they needed to abide in him. To abide in him. That phrase, abide in him, means to stay close to. To stay in close fellowship with. And so that same principle is, is true now 3,000 years later after David's time. When we, as we walk with the Lord, need to stay close to Him, we need to dwell in the house of the Lord. Now that can be done by coming to fellowship at a great church like Plum Creek Chapel. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I wish I could make this verse say that you know God is commanding you to come to Plum Creek Chapel. But I can't quite stretch it that far. But I can tell you it's saying stay close to the Lord. Stay close to the Lord in your personal life through His Word and through fellowshipping with other like-minded believers. And it's interesting, the last word, see it there on the screen, forever. In the original Hebrew, that's set apart on its own line. In fact, if you look at your Old Testament uh, Bible, if you have it, if you look at you know historical narrative portions, say, in, just pick anywhere in Samuel, just about, you'll notice how in our English translation it has the columns sort of full justified, like you're reading a newspaper column, like it's just a narrative telling you something that happened. But you come to poetic portions of Scripture, like the Psalms, and they look different, don't they? They're, because the English translation is trying to reflect the way the poetry was written in Hebrew. And so if you look in your English Bible a verse 
23, at least in the New King James Version, uh, the ESV, the NIV, uh, it puts forever on its own line. You may not have even noticed that. You might have wondered, but now that you do, you might wonder, you know, well, there was plenty of room on the line right above it. Why didn't it just put forever at the end of the line? Well, because it's set apart. And I think it punctuates David's response to everything that he's just written. It's like, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Period. The end. Full stop. Right? I'm not going to ever leave. And why should I? Um, the word forever in Hebrew literally has the connotation uh, uh, to the end of my days. Right? Uh, it's not eternal like the eternal Godhead or eternity. It's it's forever on earth. The idea is as long as I've lived as I'm living out my life, I'm going to stay close to the Lord. As long as I'm topside this earth. So there you go. Uh, I, as I think through this uh, uh, great hymn that we're all familiar with, uh, the Lord gives us everything we need. He guides us in the right direction. He grants us courage when we go through dark valleys and when somebody attacks. He's right there to guard us. So the takeaway um, is this. Never give up on God. Never doubt His ability to see you through. Always look for God's hand in every situation, no matter how dark. And don't be surprised when the enemy attacks, because the world is full of wolves. And uh, they're going to attack. In different ways, different times, personally, nationally, globally, who knows? But there are a lot of wolves out there. Don't be surprised. But stay close to God every step of the way. And uh, He will protect us. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for these rich texts that we're so familiar with, yet every time we read it, we can gain even more comfort uh, from it, from, from the timeless words of, of, of Your Word. So Lord, we pray today that uh, if there's one here within the sound of my voice, who's not placed their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, that that would be step number one. In simple childlike faith, they would recognize that only Jesus can save, only Jesus can forgive sin, that He paid their personal debt, and He offers freely to them the gift of eternal life, which can only be received by faith. So we pray that everyone within the sound of my voice would evaluate their own heart and make sure there's been a time when they've trusted in Jesus Christ. And then for those that know the Lord, I pray, Father, that this passage would just really encourage us, give us boldness and courage, and remind us of what a good, good uh, Father we serve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you'd remain seated for just a moment, we have a special presentation we want to give.